welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 111 The Best Game Modules, Published Adventures of All Time from You, Part 4. I have a confession to make. When I originally came up with the plan to have you come up with the subject matter for an episode of this podcast, I'd anticipated needing two shows to get it all in. If you'd told me then that we'd need four shows to get it all in, I'd have asked for 50 bucks worth of whatever you were smoking. But we have needed four episodes, and I cannot express to you how just frickin' cool that's been. But before we roll along, let me lay out how this show's gonna break down. We have five modules left from our original list, so we're gonna break those down first. Then I've got the requested modules that have come in over the past three weeks that weren't already on the list. And I think I kind of hinted last week that I was going to break down the module codes for AD&D at the end of this week's show, but I had an epiphany over the past week, and that's the fact that that list can actually be an entire episode of its own, so we'll hit that somewhere down the line, and we're just going to talk modules this week. So, since we know how long these shows have been going, uh, let's get the tour bus cranked up and roll along with this week's topic. Return to the Tomb of Horrors is the next module on our list. Written by Bruce R. Cordell and released in 1998, it's a sequel to the 1978 Gary Gygax classic, Tomb of Horrors. In fact, the boxed set, and yes, this is a boxed set, including a new printing of the original version of Tomb of Horrors, along with an introductory note from Gygax himself. Now, I noted that Bruce Cordell is the author of the new materials, and the illustrations for the two books of the set were handled by Arnie Sweckle and Philip Robb. I noted the reprint of the original Tomb of Horrors, and that box also included the 160-page campaign, a booklet of monsters, color maps, and a book with illustrations. Return to the Tomb of Horrors was created for the second edition of AD&D and built for characters level 13 to 16, and like the original, it was created for the Greyhawk campaign setting. Let's talk plot. This module basically picked up where the original left off, and that required a bit of retroactive adjustments since Tomb of Horrors ended in the Tomb of Akarak. The sequel informs us that that tomb was just an antechamber to the real resting place of the Lich, and the being that they killed previously was just a decoy. So, thanks to an opening of a portal to the cursed city of Moyle, the adventurers have the opportunity to once again track down Asarak, eliminate him, and destroy his phylactery. And if the PCs fail, they risk becoming one of the last souls he needs to complete the process of becoming a god. Return to the Tomb of Horrors picked up the 1998 Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Adventure, and it was also number 10 on the 2004 Dungeon Magazine list of the greatest D&D adventures of all time. In, in my opinion, the best opinion of this module would be the creator of the original, and Gary Gygax was interviewed by Alan Varney for the June 1998 issue of Dragon Magazine. Gygax said, quote, The new material is really excellent. Return is a whole mini-campaign, not some rehash of previous work. It offers more by far than the old Tomb of Horrors, and it's more deadly, too. End quote. 
1998 also brought A Paladin in Hell. This was also written for AD&D 2nd Edition, and Monty Cook handled the writing for this module, with Fred Fields handling the cover art, Arnie Sweckle on the interior, and Todd Gamble handling cartography. It's a 64-page module for players level 15 to 20. In a number of interviews over the years, Monty Cook has discussed what his inspiration was for A Paladin in Hell. Two illustrations had caught his eye when he was a young player. A Paladin in Hell by David Sutherland III, which was in the first edition of the AD&D Player's Handbook in 1978, and the 1977 illustration in the first edition of the Dungeon Master's Guide, Emrakul the Chaotic by Dave Trampier. A Paladin in Hell showed an armored warrior standing on a precipice while being attacked by demons, while Emrakul the Chaotic showed a wizard on horseback casting a magic ray from the tips of his fingers. The entire module came along when Wizards of the Coast bought out TSR in 1997. They decided that the 25th anniversary needed to be celebrated correctly, and tasked their writers to come up with a series of AD&D adventures inspired by the early days of TSR. Or, to be more specific, inspired by those seriously old-school modules we covered way back in the first episode of this run. Monty Cook was tapped for one, and a paladin in hell was the result. He noted that, quote, the A Paladin in Hell piece from the first edition player's handbook was so iconic to me that when given the chance, I wrote a whole second edition module about it, end quote. And he included Emrakul the Chaotic as a fairly significant NPC. A Paladin in Hell begins when the funeral of an illustrious paladin is interrupted and the temple and everyone in it find themselves suddenly transported to the Nine Hells. The PCs are tasked with finding said temple and returning it to its proper place. Emrakul the Chaotic plays a large role in the first part of the adventure, as the group needs to hit him up for advice and information. From there, they find out where the temple is, but getting there is not going to be easy. Part 2 gets the group where they need to be, but their armor and weapons aren't working and good aligned spells aren't getting it done. Part 3... Yeah, you kind of need to play it to get it, but let's just remind you that your good players are in hell. Enough said. Wayne McLaren wrote in his 1998 review, quote, Much like another classic adventure, The Tomb of Horrors, this module will find players failing much more often than they succeed. Between the pace that the adventure demands and the harsh conditions of adventuring in hell, players will be hard-pressed to solve the riddle of the temple, much less survive the onslaught of literally hundreds of demons and devils, end quote. He concluded, quote, For all those DMs out there, whether you're just looking for something to do over a long weekend, you're bored with your current crop of players, or you just want to laugh evilly to yourself while reading the nasty, nasty, nasty stuff waiting for your intrepid adventures between these pages, a paladin in hell is a great choice, end quote. Now, I've touched on this next particular module a time or two in the past, but I've never really broken it down in long form. Reverse Dungeon was written for the second edition of AD&D by John D. Ratliff and Bruce R. Cordell and was released in 2000. The entire idea of Reverse Dungeon is that the players are controlling the monsters within the dungeon instead of the adventurers. They start as a small goblin tribe and work their way through multiple other monster types before finishing as undead. And yes, adventurers are the antagonists. Ratliff and Cordell have noted from time to time that the idea of the reverse dungeon is to make players understand that monsters aren't necessarily evil. Instead, they have their own motives and needs, and so they're probably just misunderstood. 
Pyramid Magazine Online had a review on June 7th, 2000, quote, This is not your normal adventure. Instead of playing a stalwart group of adventurers valiantly fighting the forces of darkness, the players take on the challenge of playing those forces and deciding for themselves if they are truly that dark, end quote. Overall, the reviewer enjoyed the module. The final module on our list for AD&D is Die Vecna Die. Written by Bruce R. Cordell and Steve Miller, it was designed for 2nd edition AD&D and released in 2000. Designed for character levels 10 through 13, the cover art was handled by Paul Bonner and interior art from Kevin McCann. It's 160 pages, and the adventure covers three different campaign settings, Greyhawk, Ravenloft, and Planescape. Over the years, a number of gamers and writers have argued that the way this module was laid out explains the changes to the D&D rules from 2nd edition to the soon-to-be-released 3rd edition. Wizards of the Coast hasn't ever really confirmed or denied this, but once you've read through the adventure and then checked out the 3rd edition rules, it's kind of hard to argue with it. Look, there's a lot going on here. The PCs are charged with taking down Vecna, which we all know is damn near impossible. It's a race across settings and times, and of course, Vecna's not going to go down without a fight. Again, I realize the explanation's a bit light, but it's freaking Vecna. For me, you don't have to say a hell of a lot more to get me to want to play, so there's that. And I've got a review for this that I think kind of explains it all. Alex Lucard reviewed Die Vecna Die for Die Hard Game Fan on May 27, 2013. Here's what he said. Quote, Die Vecna Die is more of a campaign than a mere adventure, and it's arguably the most ambitious thing ever put out for 2nd edition AD&D. Die Vecna Die is no mere adventure, but a massive undertaking for high-level characters, seeing them go through not one, but three different campaign settings. Players will encounter some of the most iconic and evil characters in all of Dungeons & Dragons and have to witness firsthand the end of the 2nd edition universe and the beginnings of 3rd edition. It's a damn shame how overlooked and underrated Die Vecna Die is, as it's easily the best long campaign-like adventure ever put out for 2nd edition. It's a massive undertaking akin to, say, Horror on the Orient Express for Call of Cthulhu. But much like that seminal work, Die Vecna Die is worth it, especially if you're a fan of any or all of the campaign settings that you will work your way through here. End quote. Okay, so I've got one more module on our original list. Red Hand of Doom was written by James Jacobs and Richard Baker and released in 2006. Intended for characters levels 6 through 12, it's built for 3.5 edition D&D. It's also the first D&D adventure to include what became known as designer notes. Designer notes were asides written by the authors to provide advice to players and to explain why they made some of the choices they made in the design process. These designer notes also incorporated downloadable content, though it was pretty much all PDFs. Jacobs and Baker have noted over the years that they'd considered the subject matter of the module finished when it was released, and they had no intentions of ever making a sequel. However, when Dungeon Adventure Paths were created for 4th edition, the very first one starts in the very location of Red Hand of Doom. For the record, that adventure is Scales of War. And while it does start in the location, it doesn't build on anything that was written in that module. Oh, and I almost forgot, Red Hand of Doom is built for generic campaign settings, but that's not as big of a deal in the post-3rd edition world, since Forgotten Realms and Eberron were the only settings really supported. Let's do the plot. 
Our band of PCs have entered the Elsir Vale, which is very thinly populated and out on the frontier. They run into a horde of hobgoblins who are fanatical followers of Tiamat. So the PCs have to stop the hobgoblins, but that also leads to giants, dragons, and well, let's just say it's an overwhelming enemy. I'm not going to do a review for this, but I do want to note that overall Red Hand of Doom was fairly well received. One of the issues that seems to have drawn a lot of type space is the generic setting for the campaign. Those who like it appreciate that the adventure can be dropped into any campaign without adjustments being needed. However, that generic nature also forces DMs who are running it on its own to make a lot of adjustments in order to run it. Dungeon Master for Dummies lists Red Hand of Doom as one of the 10 best third edition adventures. Oh, and I didn't necessarily say this for each of these entries, but they're all out of print. So you know the drill, drivethroughrpg.com or the DMs Guild if you're interested. So that brings us to the end of our original list of modules. Since we ran that first episode a month ago, we've been getting requests for more modules to cover every week. In all honesty, quite a few of those have popped up as we've continued through the list. However, we've got some that didn't, and the reason for some of them is because they aren't D&D. And since I promised I'd cover everything you asked for, we're going to get into these modules starting now. We need to head all the way back to 1980 for this request. Inferno was written by Jeffrey O. Dale and released by Judges Guild. Kevin Ciambiata handled the illustrations and it clocked in at 64 pages, which was pretty damn big by the standards of the time. Inferno was intended to be played with the first edition AD&D rules, and it even stated that on the cover. It was also a higher level encounter as it was designed for groups level 10 through 14. The entire idea behind Inferno was that it was intended to build up the nine layers of hell as laid out in Dante's Inferno. However, this release only has the first four circles. It was intended for another release, intended for later in the year, to cover those other five. Needless to say, that release never happened. Dale gives credit to Dante in the very introduction to the module, then proceeds to note that the circle of hell the AD&D monster manual puts archdevils in is wrong. From there, the meat grinder that is Inferno begins. As many an online writer noted, this was the adventure where your GM could literally tell you to go to hell since that's where you were headed. Through the course of the module, you'll take on devils, elementals, and other baddies that were cooked up for this module. You'll also encounter Charon, Minos, and Cerebus, just to name a few. Those who love this module really, really love it, but those who don't can be absolutely brutal. In fact, the review I pulled for Inferno tends to swing between both. Ron Shigeta reviewed Inferno for the September 1980 issue of The Space Gamer. He noted that Inferno, quote, is for those who have gotten cursed scrolls saying, go to hell, or own a geas to some lawful good cleric. Hell is everything it's cracked up to be. Not just anybody can dash in and out of this place. As a matter of fact, it would be the achievement of a character's career to get out alive, as it should be. Everything is covered, from Tiamat's cave to the palace of Mino, and nothing is easy. Both new and old devils and monsters be here, end quote. But as he continued, his praise changed to criticism. Quote, but not everything is as it should be. Minos's palace has 13 rooms and Tiamat's cave has four paragraphs where it should have a book of its own. Often a description of some new magical item will take up more room than the overall description of the level it's on, end quote. 
He concluded with, quote, I bought Inferno because I wanted the Plane of Nine Hells in my campaign and didn't have the time to do it myself. Anybody who wants to spend a few weeks on it can probably do as well or better, end quote. Now, I don't normally discuss it when I've checked out scanned PDFs of something online because I always want to support artists in legal ways, but I did get a chance to read a couple of pages of Inferno, and while I get some of the negative things Shigeta pointed out, overall it looks like it would have been a hell of a lot of fun to both run and play, so I see why several of our listeners wrote in and requested we cover it on the show. I would also normally send you to drivethroughrpg.com for a copy of this since it's been out of print for more than 40 years. However, the version they're selling is something cobbled together by Judges Guild employees later on and not a scan of the original. There were some negative comments about this on there, but since it seems to be the only legal version I can find, head there. And if you've got a copy of the original by chance, I'd note for the record that they're going for up to $150 online. So if you need a couple of gallons of gas, you've got a way to pay for it. Next up is an adventure from a company that us old school gamers would recognize as a producer of high quality miniatures. Cloudland was written by Tony Fiortio and released by Grenadier Models in 1984. Cover art for this 48-page book was handled by Martin Keeley, and Flint Henry and Gary Pilkington produced the interior art. It's easy for me to say. Cloudland was developed as an introductory adventure for AD&D and was part of a four-module line Grenadier came out with in 1984, with one each for AD&D, Call of Cthulhu, Traveler, and Mercenaries, Spies, and Private Eyes. Needless to say, none of the adventures sold a lot of copies, and since Grenadier made better money selling minis, they got out of the adventure writing business almost immediately. One more fun fact before we break down the plot, Grenadier did not have a license to produce this adventure for AD&D, so while it was pretty much understood you'd need the AD&D rules to play it, that wasn't printed anywhere in the module, and the generic word fantasy was used to describe the rules system. Cloudland is, in essence, a dungeon crawl with a fairly complex labyrinth system below it. The Cloudland Castle is the site for all of this, and the towers of the castle can also be explored. Again, it's an adventure designed for and marketed to new players, and the players I read comments for online said that it was perfect for that use. Chris Hunter did the review for the February 1985 issue of Imagine. He was unimpressed, noting, quote, Cloudland from Grenadier Models, Inc. is appalling. It consists of a castle with five dungeon levels beneath it and is seriously overcrowded with many types of monsters who spend their entire lives sitting in their rooms waiting to be killed by adventurers, end quote. In fairness, that's pretty much how dungeons were built when D&D was created. So lighten up, Chris. Rick Swan was kinder. In his review for the March-April 1985 edition of Space Gamer, he noted that while the game would be horrible for a longtime player, new players would probably dig it because, quote, there's definitely a place for simple introductory modules for new role players, and Cloudland fills the bill nicely. The same elements that make it a treat for newcomers, however, will make it a real bore for the experienced. Size up your own group and proceed accordingly, end quote. Again, Cloudland is long out of print, so drivethroughrpg.com is probably going to be your best bet. And again, I really needed to get them to sponsor this show. With the amount of business I've thrown them in the past month, I mean, damn. Anyway, let's let's do another on the not D&D list. And as the folks who requested it said, maybe it's not a true module, but it's one hell of a good release. 
Milwaukee by Night is a supplement for Vampire the Masquerade. Andrew Greenberg and Rob Hatch get the editor credit, while the artwork was handled, as tends to be the case with White Wolf products, by the cast of dozens. And I don't say that to not give anyone their props. There's literally a dozen names involved in the art process. White Wolf released Milwaukee by Night in 1992, and it really is the textbook definition of a source book, as it lays out Milwaukee in great detail. I mean, if you've ever picked up a vampire source book, you know how deep that detail goes. The political intrigue concerning every clan, the, the history of the clans in the city, phenomenal details about various locales, and of course, new goodies for use in the setting. One thing that needs to be noted about Milwaukee by Night is that it was developed before the werewolf game was. So when the rules discuss them, the rules that are used are what we'd now call playtest rules, or at least a variation on those. So if you've played werewolf and go to play this, that's going to explain why things look different. There is a story in the supplement, so that's how I justify this as a module. Called Psychomachia, it is, in my mind anyway, the textbook definition of what vampire can do when it's running full throttle. I'm not going to go into detail on this, because frankly, it's nearly impossible to lay it out in a single paragraph, and I've still got a ton more stuff to cover. I'm also not going to do a review. I mean, I read it. I liked it. That's, that's good enough for me. It's also long out of print, so drive through RPG will be the place to be if you want to check it out. You know what? Let's, let's do one more on the not D&D list. It's called Impossible Landscapes, and it is considered to be the first published adventure for Delta Green. I guess we need a bit of Delta Green background here. It's a supernatural horror-based game, but the PCs are part of a government team in this one. I took a look at a number of the Reddit forums out there, and to an individual, <laughs> well, let's just say I'm going to have to spend more money on yet another game. Insofar as impossible landscapes, I think I'll read the flavor piece from the Arc Dream website. Fear is fractal, and your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality, shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. Madness pursues at every turn, baring its teeth to speak your name, and you can't escape because it's inside you. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. Beyond the tumble-down facade of the world, through the twists and tunnels of the human imagination, past the edge of everything sane, the king waits in the country of Carcosa, the place all madmen go. There and only there is the answer to everything. The last answer. And I can tell you that from what I've read about this, that doesn't even do the adventure justice. You can pick up a copy in either hardcover or PDF from the Arc Dream website. That's arcdream.com, A-R-C-D-R-E-A-M.com. Oh, and Impossible Landscapes picked up a 2022 Any Award for Best Graphic Design and Layout. And if you're curious about how the game plays, the Arc Dream website has links to seven different live play series for Delta Green, and they have all played Impossible Landscapes. So if you're at all curious, you can kind of test drive before you buy. Okay, so even with all the AD&D and D&D modules I've covered over the past month, I apparently didn't cover enough because I've got six more I need to discuss. 
First up, we head back into the old school with module I-2, Tomb of the Lizard King. Written by Mark Akers with Jim Holloway and Jeff Easley handling the artwork, it was published in 1982. Checking in at 32 pages with an outer folder, Tomb of the Lizard King was considered to be an intermediate module, and that's what the I-code was for. It was created for characters level 5 through 7 and was built for a generic AD&D setting. It should also be noted that Tomb of the Lizard King was the official tournament module for Origins 1980. So what's it all about? Tomb of the Lizard King is a three-part adventure. It starts with the characters being hired by the Count of Eeyore to investigate and deal with the monstrous force wreaking havoc on caravans and peasants near the village of Wacombe. Over the course of the adventure, the group will travel through the wilderness, fight brigands, and explore the Tomb of the Lizard King. Needless to say, that's not going to be a walk in the park. Doug Cowie reviewed Tomb of the Lizard King for the July 1983 issue of Imagine, and he called it, quote, a one-off exercise with various encounters occurring in widely differing settings, end quote. He praised the maps as well-drawn. Overall, he did enjoy the module and thought it was much better than N1, even though the premises of the two were similar. Jim Bambra handled the review for the September 1983 issue of White Dwarf. It got a 9 out of 10 overall, and he called it, quote, a difficult adventure that was designed to test a party's metal and playing skill, end quote. He concluded by saying it's, quote, a good module for those who enjoy challenging gaming sessions with plenty of opportunity to be cautious, thoughtful, and aggressive, end quote. Okay, so when I was talking about the S series of modules a few weeks back, I said there were only four in the line, and technically I wasn't wrong about that. Officially, there were only ever four modules intended to be a part of the line. However, there were two modules released later that were given the S code, but weren't technically a part of the series. Anyway, the number of listeners who called me out in a friendly way led me to add them to our list. Let's go in order, so we'll start with S5, The Dancing Hut of Baba Yaga. Written by Lisa Smedman for 2nd Edition AD&D, it was released in 1995. The Baba Yaga in this case is a wizard, and the adventure starts when she arrives with her legendary dancing hut. The group is tasked with investigating the hut, and much like a TARDIS, it's much bigger on the inside. Also, the hut itself is the antagonist, though the Baba Yaga is a nuisance hanging around as well. The Dancing Hut of Baba Yaga tends to be one of those modules that DMs love, but players hate. Mostly it's because it can be a meat grinder. I didn't get a chance to check out a full version, but I can say that what I read made me want to run it, but I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that I have no intentions of ever playing it. The original's been out of print since the end of 2nd edition, and if you're looking for a copy of it, drive through RPG is probably your best bet. But wait, you say, you didn't say the DMs Guild. Correct. That's because the module got an update for 5th edition, and that's what's available on DMs Guild. And while I call it an update, it would probably be more accurate to call it a quasi-sequel. But if you don't mind playing 5e, you can grab this there. Oh, and if you hate PDFs, they'll gladly sell you a hardcover copy. Rick Swan handled the review for the October 1995 issue of Dragon Magazine. He noted that the Dancing Hut, quote, remains one of TSR's most durable villains, having boogalooed through a 1976 Dungeons & Dragons game supplement, the AD&D Book of Artifacts, and a couple of Dragon Magazine articles, end quote. He concluded by saying, quote, 
Smedman serves up an adventure with an avalanche of adversaries and what seems like an infinite number of rooms. Sure, it's a glorified dungeon crawl, but it's a dungeon crawl of transcendent proportions. How many dungeons do you know that lead to alternate reality Tokyo? End quote. Let's close up the S series for good this time and cover S6 Labyrinth of Madness. Written by Monty Cook and released in 1995 for the Forgotten Realms setting of 2nd edition AD&D, the story begins for the characters when they're tasked with heading into the labyrinth to try to figure out how to counter a curse plaguing a very powerful temple. There's a ton of legends surrounding that labyrinth, so the group's going to have to figure out what's fact and what's fiction, as well as deal with a bunch of big baddies, including a lich, a titan, and the Yuan-Ti. And that's just three things they have to deal with. Losing their minds is also a distinct possibility. The Labyrinth was intended for groups level 15 to 20, and like most of the modules we've covered, it's available in PDF form from the DMs Guild. I scoured the internet for reviews from the time, but they're locked behind paywalls, and I hate paywalls. Checking reviews from players and DMs today, the module gets rave reviews, though to an individual they note that this can be one of those meat grinder scenarios, so parties had better bring along their A game. Next up is 2000's The Sunless Citadel. Written by Bruce Cordell with cover art from Todd Lockwood and interior art from Dennis Kramer, this 32-page adventure was intended for first-level characters. Wizards of the Coast intended the Sunless Citadel to be the first in a chain of modules that could be run as a long-standing campaign, much as TSR had done back in the day. So one would usually follow this with the Forge of Fury, though we're not going to cover that one this go-around. The plot of the adventure has the group hearing rumors about the Sunless Citadel and heading to it from the small town of Oakhurst, which is where they are as things began. They explore the Citadel, running into kobolds, goblins, and the like ultimately coming across the druid Belak, who explains why the forest acts as hinky as it does. And to explain that here would be to ruin the climax. If, by chance, you're looking for a 5th edition version of this module, pick up a copy of Tales from the Yawning Portal, as the Sunless Citadel is a part of that anthology. Dungeon Master for Dummies lists the module as one of the 10 best 3rd edition adventures. The Pyramid Magazine staff as a whole handled this review, stating, quote, Unlike some adventures, this one encourages the GM to award the players experience to advance levels during gameplay, so they are powerful enough to handle the later encounters, end quote. Oh, and if that sounds like a weird observation, let's remember that the switch to 3rd edition brought a ton of changes to gaming. Just saying. If you're looking for a 3rd edition copy of Sunless Citadel, check out the DM's Guild. Next up is a sequel module, Return to the Temple of Elemental Evil. Written by Monty Cook and released by Wizards of the Coast in 2001, Return is an updated, revised, and expanded sequel to the original AD&D adventure, which we covered earlier in our list. It checks in at 192 pages and spends a lot of those pages fleshing out Hamlet, the Temple of All Consumption, and the Temple of Elemental Evil. Cook also recentered the cult at the center of the adventure, shifting it to Tharazdun from the originals, and he did that to clear up the questions and confusion over their connection to Elemental Evil from the original adventure. He also, very wisely, tied the Elder Elemental Eye from the Forgotten Temple of Tharazdun to the Temple of Elemental Evil. And for the record, Cook was able to work from notes by Gary Gygax for a sequel, though he didn't use all or even most of what Gary had written. 
The plot is very similar to the original module. The group has to defeat the plans of the cultists of Therizdun, who've moved back to take over the temple. Their plan is to restore each of the four elemental nodes and release the princes of elemental evil to bring chaos and destruction to the area. Return to the Temple of Elemental Evil was specifically set in the Greyhawk setting and built for character levels 4 through 14. Also, the later module, Princes of the Apocalypse, was intended to tie into this one, which made a three-module series when the original temple was included. In that Dungeon Magazine list of the greatest D&D adventures ever, Return to the Temple of Elemental Evil came in at number 8. If you're looking for it, you know the drill, so I'm not going to say it here for the thousandth time. The last module we're covering for this four-show series is actually a 5th edition adventure. Baldur's Gate Descent into Avernus was written by Christopher Perkins and released on September 17th, 2019. It's set in the Forgotten Realms and built for character levels 1 through 13. This module had been announced in May of that year, and while Perkins gets the creative note, actor Joe Magnello also had a part to play, as his character Arkan the Cruel appears as one of the big bad evil guys in the module. He even did interviews during the initial release period where he tried to explain that Arkham wasn't a villain, though if you've seen Joe play the character on the critical role or Force Grey, you know that's not the case. The standard version of the module checks in at 256 pages, and I say standard because Beetle and Grimm did a limited run of their Platinum Edition, and I believe that clocked in a little over 300 pages. Descent into Avernus is a slow burner of an adventure. It begins in Baldur's Gate with the group investigating some goings-on, then leads to them needing to make the trip into Avernus, which is the first layer of the Nine Hells, to deal with the Archdevil Zariel. There's also an option for the group to enter the Blood War. Look, I've personally run this module, and I can tell you that my explanation isn't doing it justice. Let me just say this. It's not Icewind Dale by any stretch of the imagination, but I found it to be a fun adventure for a group, and mine probably would have liked it a whole hell of a lot better had we not had to run it in a virtual form at the start of the pandemic, and quite frankly, if I'd run it better. Just being honest here. Charlie Hall reviewed it for Polygon Online on September 6th, 2019. He said, quote, Overall, I'm extremely impressed with Descent into Avernus. It's easily the best adventure module that Wizards has put out all year and a tremendous value given the amount of the material inside. It's also an interesting prequel to the upcoming computer game Baldur's Gate 3, end quote. And for the first time in four shows, I can tell you with exceptional confidence that Descent into Avernus is available in hardcover at your friendly local game shop or wherever you buy your games. And that brings us to the end of our list on the best modules of all time according to you. Before I get into all of our end of episode stuff, I wanted to take a moment to thank all of you for your suggestions and submissions for our list. I know I suggested two episodes when I initially put this out there, but your interest and enthusiasm about this subject took us through four episodes, and I cannot tell you how cool I think that is. I also got a number of messages from listeners who'd like to hear me cover more of these old school adventures on the show, and I can promise you we'll be doing a lot more of that in the future, though probably only a couple at a time instead of a dozen or so to go. I'm just saying. Again, thank you from the bottom of my heart for the support and keep the ideas for show topics coming. Next week, we're going to take a look at three of the magazines we utilize frequently on this show for source material, White Dwarf, The Space Gamer, and Imagine. 
In the meanwhile, please check out our other fine podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. This week, our group picks up another vital clue in solving the mystery as to who wants them dead and why. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash badgmprod. On Twitter at badgmp. YouTube and Tumblr, Bad GM Productions. You can email us at badgmproductions at gmail.com. And online, the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we dig into White Dwarf, The Space Gamer, and Imagine. Just imagine what we'll find. Yeah, I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself. But that's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history. <laughs>